1: where we are exploring the Bible and the weird things that are in it.
2: The many weird things. The many weird (laughs) things. But that's what makes it interesting.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So
2: it's, I mean, I,
1: I, I, yes, I'm not trying to like dismiss that, but no, it's, that is what makes it interesting.
2: Well, and I think we forget that as Christians, if you're an outsider looking into our faith, it makes no sense. And, you know, it it just doesn't. And I think we've just become so accustomed to the ideas and the basic principles of Christianity and what the Bible teaches that it doesn't seem weird. But I think it's good sometimes to step outside of that, Mm -hmm. you know, mindset and actually, what do other people think about this? And why are people resisting sometimes because of the weirdness?
1: Well, and and it's kind of funny to the thing, some of the things that make it weird um, because there are things that also sometimes happen in other contexts that are just slightly different. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you guys go into this room with a stage and you all line up to listen to music. That's not really great. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, we, we understand going to a concert to listen to really good right? musicians, but, um, but you know, it's that one thing that looks a little off. It's, I'm totally joking.
2: Uh, yeah. Cause there are some really are great some musicians really great, and...
1: Actually, okay, so we normally don't do like a lot of banter at the front anymore, but I Mickey and I recently went to a church, and they they had two service times listed, and they didn't say on the website that there was any, any difference between mm-hmm. them and Of course, in Norman, you have tons of churches that run the same service uh, several times in a day mm-hmm. and I, I think one of the one of the churches over on the other side of town was running like the same service five times and right? so
2: you could show up any point in time and get mm-hmm. the same thing everybody else got
1: yeah and, and so um so we we weren't sure what to expect we showed up and apparently we showed up to the what they called their more traditional service <laughs>
2: right oklahoma traditional evidently <laughs> well,
1: okay so so yeah what i was expecting was a uh, piano or an organ or both and just straight hymns you know Mhm. <laughs> and we show up and it's like uh it's like it, it's it's not like bluegrass, it's kind of near bluegrass, it's like the old country western almost almost like the the country swing stuff. Uh I mean it but the musicians were really good. Their piano player was killer. I mean he was, it was mm-hmm. this I I I should have got his name, but he this old guy uh had a beard halfway down his chest. Um, and he was doing the whole, like, just that syncopated uh, honky tonk style piano. And it was, it was, it was amazing. Um, so yeah, there are some really good musicians and I actually, I, I have to say, I really enjoyed that. Um. My nose I, is
2: exploding over here. Yeah, it's okay.
1: I, I actually kind of enjoyed that more than a lot of the modern sets I've been to lately.
2: It had to be like nostalgic for you. It, it
1: really was in a weird way because it wasn't nostalgic in like the sense of church. Right. But okay, a little, little background on me uh, is I'm a musician. I started out with the violin
2: the fiddle you never played the violin in
1: your (laughs) life you're not listening you don't you weren't there now i i did play uh violin um i actually wanted to play more violin mom and dad wanted me to play more fiddle pieces (laughs) and um so the in in wagner oklahoma there's a huge fiddlers convention and i don't think it's every year i want to say it's every other year or something like that but you'll have some of the best musicians Mm -hmm. there because it's not just fiddlers you'll actually have all these musicians who have played with Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys and all the, the country swing bands. Mm-hmm. And they're just sitting around jamming and they're playing all these country songs and it doesn't matter. People will come in, set up their guitar, their amp. They'll sit sit in on a session, never say a word to anybody right. and and play along for a while, pack up their stuff, go to another room, sit in on a session. It's amazing so it was nostalgic in that in that sense well and
2: i think we should tell people that you were like how old at this point
1: i was oh man i was well i started playing when i was 12 so yeah um so yeah i i got to i actually got to sit in with some of these guys i mean
2: well it helps that our uncle well yeah okay (laughs)
1: so yeah we have we have uncles that are uh that are big time uh country swing musicians in the country
2: music hall of fame and mm -hmm, yeah yeah and (laughs) So family connections helped. Yeah, so that that
1: helped. Although you could be anyone and just walk into a room and sit in. It didn't matter.
2: See, somehow I managed to miss this. I mean, accidentally, I'm sure, you know, I should have been there and be a supportive sister. And it was just a terrible
1: thing that I didn't make it. Well, usually it was dad who would take me and he'd take me in the pickup and there was only one seat. So.
2: No, this is true. So, well, I think that was dad did that on purpose. So by design. (laughs) Yeah. So um, because there were four of us for anyone who doesn't know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so so getting down to one is, is like a vacation. Exactly. Um, especially us. But anyway. <laughs>
2: now that you got a lot more family history on us than you ever anticipated. Yeah,
1: so we, we weren't planning that, but that's, uh, but well. yeah, so, uh. Yeah, let's talk about it. it was Sam. fun, so let's yeah, let's move on from church music and nostalgic.
2: Talking about young boys who get shoved into awkward situations. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and
1: actually, I figured out. I was trying to think. There's a character that Samuel, not Samuel, that Saul reminded me of in the in the description of uh, of somebody who's tall, kind of bumbly, um, and <laughs> but but still wanting to do the right thing, and uh, it's a. Uh, uh, Andy from Parks and Rec. So anyone who's seen I'm going to have to watch that.
2: You make so many e- references. It's, yeah. It's like just you know, out of yeah, Chris, self-preservation <laughs>
1: Chris, Chris Pratt's character. You know, he's just like he's he's a big guy. He uh he's taller than everyone else. He's enthusiastic about everything he does. Um but he's also kind of clueless. But but we'll give you the shirt off his back. Like it's it's that character. Gotcha. So
2: okay. Well, I, 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 it's good to have those, uh, those kind of overlaps where you can kind of have a character in mind to kind of fill in some of the blanks that the, the Bible leaves. Because, you know, that's one of the things that the Bible doesn't really give you a lot of background information. It's not real big on the excessive or extra details. And, you know, that's one of your clues, actually, whenever you need to, when you're paying attention, if you find a lot of extra details it's because there's something going on you need to p- need to be paying attention to, right? And so, uh, this, this is one of the reasons why we know the Bible was probably written by men. But uh, I probably shouldn't say that in today's society. But it's true. I think women would have included more details, uh, but then we wouldn't be able to carry it around.
1: Hey, maybe they did, and maybe it was edited by men.
2: Oh, <laughs> well, that's that's true. That's not important.
1: <laughs> so okay. <laughs> anyway, before we share more unpopular opinions, let's. Right Look at unpopular scriptures. <laughs>
2: yeah. so we're in Samuel, first Samuel nine, and I'm picking it up in verse 20 because we had left off with Samuel has gotten to um, the city where, where Samuel where Saul has gotten to the city where Samuel is. Yes. And he's had the conversation with the girls and he's just happened to be there at the right time to meet the girls and happened to be there when Samuel is there, happens to be there when dinner is about to be served so we've seen God orchestrate this whole set of events to get the guy he wants in the place he needs to be to do what God has appointed him to do right so um and i'm sitting here looking at my notes and i'm trying to remember exactly where we were oh uh, yes so we left off where Saul was actually approaching Samuel and as he approaches you know Saul has no idea who the most famous guy in Israel is and mm-hmm. Samuel I wish this is where I wish everybody read Hebrew, because instead of saying "That's me," you know, "Well, hi" or anything like that, he he uses this real emphatic form and really awkward wording that's that says, "I am the seer." I mean, it's like you you dolt, <laughs> how dare you mistake who I am? See,
1: it's Andy Dwyer because there's an episode <laughs> where they go to England and they're trying to negotiate this, this some contract with with this company and. And Andy has no idea who anyone is. And so he's treating these, I think is one of the, the Dukes or something like he's just a Joe normal Blow. person. So, yeah, they like go, wind up going to the park and playing games and stuff. And and
2: <laughs> the Duke has the best time ever. Yeah. And so
1: because Andy was there, they wind up sealing the, the contract. Yeah. So, yeah. You should watch it. It's Samuel, pretty funny.
2: Samuel's not going to let that happen. He's going to make sure that that Saul knows exactly who he is because he Samuel has a plan, uh-huh. and he's going to make sure that his plan. And this this is one of the really weird debates that the rabbis got into: is is Samuel really doing everything God told him to do? Is Samuel uh, overstepping bounds at places? How much of what Samuel says is really what God says, and how much of it is Samuel, is Samuel talking? Mm-hmm. And I, I can kind of see why, because Samuel is—you know—we've talked about before—he's that grumpy old man. He, he's just kind of crusty around the edges kind of mm-hmm. fella. And sometimes Samuel's approach to things is very harsh, and it's hard to see God in those harsh statements if you aren't familiar with the way prophets talk. Right, And prophets often are very, very harsh because they don't have time to play. They aren't worried about what's in front of them. They're worried about the eternal truths, and mm-hmm. everybody else is just wasting the fate time. of the
1: universe. Is <laughs>
2: exactly yeah. That, that's exactly it. So who cares about donkeys? That that doesn't matter at all. We're we're talking about the future of Israel as a nation, and we you know we've got to get to that Messiah. Mm-hmm. And if we're not working towards that, then nothing else matters. And that's Samuel's. uh you know that's his mindset, and he's not certain that Saul really can do this. Right, but at the same time, he knows that this is what God is telling him to do. So he's kind of he's going along because he he wants to be obedient to God and he trusts God. But in the back of his mind, he's you know shaking his head the whole time. Why are we doing this? This is a waste of time. So it, it, it's I, I like the <laughs> juxtaposition, and I love the the fact that the Bible doesn't hide that that Samuel. Despite the fact that he doesn't quite get it, he still is obedient. Right, and right. so he, you know, he's got this personal reaction. So, anyway, Samuel um, invites Saul to dinner, and when he invites Saul to dinner, they're they're going to go to that high place that was created there, and he promises in the morning, "I'll I'll let you go. Right, just just come stay with me tonight." And so, in verse twenty, he he kind of shifts gears and he he tells. Saul, you know, don't worry about the donkeys. They got home three days ago. You're fine. And the donkeys are fine. Right. And, but then he adds this, this little um, thing at the end. It says, and the ESV has it, and for whom is it that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and your father's house? So that's kind of a, a rough translation. Uh, it's not real smooth. So a better translation is, and for whom of all of Israel is longing? Aren't they longing for you and your father's house? I mean, this is flattery, you know, just it, it's piled on. It's excessive. But, you know, it, it, it's Samuel because, you know, who who cares about donkeys? The nation wants you. And well, he
1: says, don't worry about the law. Lo- I'm sorry. He says, don't worry about the donkeys that were lost three days ago. Yeah. Not that they were returned three days. Oh, ago. sorry. That they were lost. Yeah. OK. I was like, I don't remember that. So,
2: OK. Like, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I don't have the, the verse written down in front of me. But, yeah. That- don't write. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's the donkeys are taken care of. You don't have to worry about it. That's the main point. And, you know, and, and the, the nation wants you. I mean, I'm having this like Phantom of the Opera moment, you know, the world wants you. And so okay. verse 21. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. I know okay. what you're talking about. So Saul answered, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of all the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan, the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Israel. Why we have are you-?
1: so humble.
2: Who, little of me? I mean, it, it really, it, but it, this is Gideon's response. I know.
1: That's, yeah, that's, <laughs> I, I did pick up on that. This yeah. is the same.
2: Oh, I, I don't deserve this great honor. Uh, you know, kiss the ring. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's the same kind of political speak that we got from Gideon. And, you know, it, it's proper. It's, it's what he should say. But as we get to know Saul, we realize it's probably mo- not the most sincere speech he makes in his life. And, you know, some of the commentators have noted how this connects to Moses being afraid and, and genuinely resisted. I don't get that. I, I get more of a, uh, of a game going on here. And I think it is more similar to Gideon than Moses, because Saul isn't being completely honest about who he is. His father is a Gabor Khalil. He, he, mm-hmm. he, he is a mighty man of valor. And at this point, the, the meaning is shifting. He's not just somebody who can fight. He's rich. He's wealthy. And we saw that with Ruth and Boaz, how that phrase is starting to shift some. Saul's Benjaminite aristocracy. He's not nobody. Right. And his father's not nobody. I mean, Samuel is living in the land of Zuth right here. And this is Saul's grandfather's land. Right. So this is not, Saul's misrepresenting himself in an attempt to appear humble. and. The thing is, Samuel he, Samuel's smart. He's not being taken in, and he's playing a little uh, word game of his own. He says, isn't the nation longing for you? But the 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 longing there, that word is covet. Okay. Uh, so coveting is a sinful desire.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: he, he's telling Saul, hey, the, the nation wants you, but they shouldn't. And there's a problem here already, but... You know, you can you can play along with their sinful desire and be a major part in what God's going to do through that sinful desire to bring about his own purposes. Sure. And so the um the, the conversation's pretty interesting when you realize what's happening behind the scenes because I can see in my mind, I can just see light bulbs exploding in Samuel's head. Because, you know, he looks up and he sees this tall, good looking young man and he's got these good quality clothes on. He's being followed by a servant, and I think this is the point where Samuel gets the joke. Mm-hmm. He, he understands what's going on, and he's going to play along with gusto. He's going to do his part because he realizes God is giving the people a king like other nations. Mm-hmm. He is answering their prayer specifically. And so, verse 22, then Samuel took Saul and the young man and brought them into the hall, and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, those who invited who were about 30 persons. Now, the hall would have been an open area, excuse me, there at Rama at the sanctuary, and they would have served the meals after sacrifices, because remember, sacrifices typically weren't completely burned up. There was just parts of them that were, and then the rest of it were eaten in the presence of God. Mm-hmm. So... Samuel, uh, he he assumes this role of gracious host, and and I think it's interesting that he put Saul and his servant at the head of the table, that the servant isn't you know busy doing dishes or you know even at the foot of the table.
1: Well, yeah, but I mean you have to think there's probably different classes of servants who have different jobs. You know, there's uh, you, mm-hmm. you know there's you have in in a, in a household like this you would have people who worked in the field you'd have people who worked in the stables you'd have people who worked in the kitchen then you'd have like the the butler who Mm -hmm, the valet the valet yeah who (laughs) the the, or or, you know people who are in charge of those things who are kind of the the go-between the house managers
2: yeah and well that's the thing it's telling you that the servant he he's not just any old servant he has to be somebody of some standing himself to be included and that little detail tells you that little thing uh and if you don't recognize it and stop and think about it, you miss it. So um, this is very reminiscent of when Abraham entertains the three guests that come to to meet him before Sodom and Gomorrah. And, but it's also the 30 guests connects us back to Samson's wedding at Timnah. Mm-hmm. And at both those events with Abraham and Sam, Samson, the guests were more than they seemed. They weren't just guests. So we know of course with Abraham, this was God and an angelic, uh, a company with him. And then Samson's, his guests were bodyguards. And so this makes you stop and think, or you should be stopping to think, who are these guests and are they more than what they seem? And so we're going to get to that. So Samuel said to the cook, this is verses 23 and 24, bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, see what it was kept and set before you eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might be with the, eat with the guest. So this portion is a portion that would traditionally be set aside for the priest. Right. This is not something that you give a guest. This, this goes to the person who presides over the sacrifice and, and not just anybody who happens along. There's significance to feeding this, but Samuel had Prepared this meal and had set apart, uh, set aside this portion, totally as an act of faith. God had told him, you know, go prepare a feast. the The new king is going to be going to be joining you. I mean, I know you don't want him, but he's going to show up today. And so you set aside the best portion for him, this guy that you're not going to like, and invite only the best people. Mm-hmm. And you know, Samuel is obedient enough to do that. And I, I think. That speaks loads about who he is, because, you know, most of us, if we if we think God's screwing something up, we're going to try to help him. And Samuel doesn't do it. That's
1: he helps him, but he doesn't try to.
2: Right. He doesn't circumvent or try to justify. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, he's not doing this. Oh, God, you really don't know what you want. And surely that's you want me to give the priest portion to this guy who's going to take our place in the nation. Mm hmm. Because that's really what the king was going to do. He's going to take God's place and Samuel's place in the nation. And God's saying, I want you to give him the best. Don't don't get upset. Just give him the best. And so this is more than just a dinner party. Because what's going on here, the, the guest had to be invited. That's the, your tip off that this is something special. Because most mm-hmm. of the time, you know, if you want to show up at a worship service, you bring whatever you need to bring to participate, but you were allowed to participate. So this means that these were probably men of influence and power. Mm -hmm. And what does Saul need if he's going to be the king of a nation? He needs the backing of the men who are influential and have power. And that's who were probably present at this, uh, at this feast. And Samuel mentions that this is the appointed time, that, that Saul had to get there at the appointed time. Now, this is going to be another theme in Saul's life. Appointed times and Saul are not going to get along. There's going to be very few times that Saul and appointed times actually make it to the same moment together. Sure. So in verses 25 and 26, Saul and Samuel, they, they return from the meal. Saul has made a bed on the roof, presumably in Samuel's house. And Samuel wakes Saul up at dawn to send him on his way, and you know Samuel sees him off. He walks down the street with him, and now this contrast with the men at Gibeah, mm-hmm. who would not he would not give the Levite and the concubine a place to stay that night, and sending him away contrast with the the concubine's father, who mm-hmm. tried to hang on to the guest because and you know really caused the whole thing. Right. So that's. Kind of a little setup there to, to let you know that Samuel is doing everything appropriately. Right. Even in the midst of all of
1: his conflicted emotions, he he's getting it right. And to the point where he can go, I only did what I was told to do.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And he, at this point, Samuel's still being pretty cautious, I think. And I think as we see him go forward in, in his ministry, even though he's still kind of gruff about some things, we kind of see him fling caution to the wind as he gets older, and that's kind of where he becomes even more problematic for, for the Bible scholars, because what do you do with this guy who, who just, he, he doesn't care about forms and, and you know, tradition, and he, he's going to obey God, but he doesn't care about anything else. Mm-hmm. God's the only thing that matters in his life, so... Verse 27, and they were going down to the outskirts of the city. Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. So at last, you know, Saul's going to figure out what's going on. All mm-hmm. he knows is he's gotten this really great party thrown for him at a city <laughs> that he didn't plan on going and these to. These people
1: are super nice.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's like... <laughs> I was just looking for some donkeys. <laughs> What's going on here?
1: And I think even for those, well, because we don't think about it because we 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 know how the story is going to go. Mm-hmm. But if you're not expecting it, you're right. <laughs> because Saul has no idea he's about to be anointed king.
2: Can you imagine? Just you know, you're you're just wandering
1: around, and then all of a sudden, everybody's like,
2: ah. Like, oh! you're the guy we've been waiting on
1: i mean wait you got you guys set this back like just in case somebody shows up in case you showed up i didn't know i was gonna be here so
2: you know no wonder saul is off balance all the time through all of his stories i mean there is the poor guy doesn't have a chance uh so in the, in the next section, uh, Samuel's going to be carrying out the anointing of, of Saul, mm-hmm. uh, as well the two are alone, and Saul's, uh, Samuel's going to give Saul a list of signs uh, to confirm that he has been chosen. But we're going to start with the ceremony uh, immediately in, in verse, uh, and sorry in chapter 10. But the question is, is chapter 10 a continuation of chapter 9, or is there some time that's passed between? Mm-hmm. And there, there is some, some question there. I, I tend to read it as it was a continuation because, I mean, we just are kind of left with Samuel's going to talk to Saul, but we don't know what he's going to say. And then chapter 10 is very much, there's a list of commands and there's a list of signs and it's everything that, that Saul is supposed to, to experience to know that this is, this is not just Samuel being some crazy, eccentric old man. Mm-hmm. He really does know what he's talking about. So, yeah.
1: and there's, there's a pretty significant list of signs too. It's not just yeah. a sign.
2: And these were all done for Saul's benefit. Well, yeah. It,
1: I mean, I guess if someone tells you you're going to be in charge of the country, you're going to want some pretty good evidence.
2: Yeah. Cause if somebody came to me today and says, you're going to be president, I would be like, uh, <laughs> you're crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You need to go talk to somebody else, but <laughs> don't want this job. <laughs> So, um, this is the beginning. Chapter Ten is the beginning of one of Samuel's uh, longer speeches. It's one hundred and forty seven words in Hebrew. And what I find interesting about this is we have Samuel's speech, and then we have just kind of this little summation that basically, yeah, it happens. It doesn't even tell you how it happens. It was just Samuel said it, so it had to happen. Mm-hmm. that That's the assumption. This is how strong Samuel's words were. We don't need to know exactly what Saul thought or what happened with Saul as it went along as he went along other than a few key bits. Right. Because Samuel's words enough. And you know, that goes back to chapter 2, you know, God didn't let any of Samuel's words fall to the ground. Sure. So um the the importance of this conversation and the importance of the way that it's recorded this really establishes the pattern for the king and the prophet in their relationship. Ultimately the prophet's going to be the one with the power. It's mm-hmm. not going to be the king. The king's got all the responsibility of leading, mm-hmm. but it's going to be the prophet that tells him how to lead. And if you want a successful kingship, you listen to the prophet. If you want to die a grisly, bloody death, disregard the prophet. And we see that probably most notably with uh, Elijah and Ahab. Right. So first one, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over the people of Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the, land, the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign for you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his inheritance. So first off, one of the little details that you, you don't notice, unless you're looking for it, is Samuel took a flask of oil, okay. not a horn. Kings are not anointed with flask, they're anointed with horns. Okay. So the fact that Samuel is not using a horn, this also tells you this is not the fulfillment of Hannah's prophecy. Okay. Because she's going, you know, God's going to strengthen the horn of his anointed, not a flask. Hmm. So very, very subtle, but it, it has significance. And so, you know, the idea is you can play a part in fulfilling the prophecy, but you're not the end. Goal. you there's okay. you're just a stepping stone but this little discrepancy and this is why I love the rabbinic writing because I mean they pick up on it and they they just take off with sure. it so they decide well if the flask is different then is the oil different and so in exodus thirty 22 through 23 we know that Moses makes a blend of anointing oil and it's got myrrh and cinnamon fragrant cane cassia and olive oil and okay. so the tradition is, is this oil that Moses made, that blend that he created, was used to anoint priests and kings until the day of King Josiah. So it lasted a pretty good amount of time, uh, according to tradition. I, I don't know if that's, you know, factual or not or true. It, it really doesn't matter. But the idea that...
1: Well, and it doesn't really matter how much he made. <laughs> right. It, what it I mean
2: if we go by Hanukkah uh, I mean, well yeah is, I
1: was going to say or the thing of the widow and the mm-hmm. and the flower
2: yeah well and that's the thing oil is something that God likes to multiply evidently this this happens several times and now the rabbis because the the container was different they say that the oil was different and that was because if a king was anointed with this kind of oil then he had a certain type of protection or favor mm-hmm. from God um you know, we don't know, but I do think it's interesting that they do pick up on that that one little detail, right? And and they can really just pick it apart and analyze it and talk about what it implies. And that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy reading their writing because they notice things in the scripture that I was not taught or conditioned to notice. I think I'm getting better as I practice it, right? But that's what uh, you know. A lot of people don't realize that reading is a skill that needs to be practiced if you're actually going to, to improve. So uh, what is important and what the scripture does um, tell us is that this is a huge break with tradition that had gone to this point. This is a, a new thing that's happening because only uh, before this, only priests and holy objects had been anointed. Mm-hmm. Prophets weren't anointed. Judges weren't anointed. So when we think about a king being anointed, this I, this is a major sign and a major confirmation that this is what God is doing. Right. And we have to to look at it from well, we have to stop looking at it from our view. And guys, I, I okay. So I'm going to do a rabbit trail because I read something last night that just really set me off. And this is <laughs> okay. Well. well, yeah, I know that sounds abrupt, but I read this this. Woman who was replying to uh, the Bible Project, actually, because evidently on the Bible Project, uh, the statement was made, and I didn't check this out, but she said that the statement was made that we had to stop looking at things from our view and actually look at it through the ancient culture's view. Right. And she said that that was ridiculous and that we, we shouldn't have to do that because the Bible wasn't written. Uh, to reveal truth to the ancient cultures alone. They were written to reveal truth to us. And, okay, number one, how, how arrogant is that to think that it's just for us? Uh, the Bible had to communicate truth in the era that it was written, mm-hmm. or else it wouldn't have been preserved. Right. <laughs> and,
1: and, and knowing Tim Mackey, okay, like, yeah. know, knowing Tim Mackey, and I can't remember who the other guy is who's who's the other half of the, the Bible project, mm-hmm. but what I've heard from Tim Mackey, he, he's not suggesting which this this is where i think a lot of people take it a lot of people take that to mean that you can't know salvation without knowing the cultural context right. and being a bible scholar. Yeah. which i think that That's that wrong. idea is wrong. Right. But in order to get the full richness of the depth of the depth it having the cultural context really really helps. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, it, to to me when people start in oh, well, I don't know how these scholars can do that. They're, they're saying we can't know the word of God. We're saying you, we're not saying you can't know the word of God. There's, there's enough in the plain mm-hmm. text for matters of faith and practice. Right. But to me I'm sorry, I'm, huh. I'm picking up, I'm, I'm taking your rant. <laughs> um, but you know, it, to me, Get off it's my soapbox.
0: <laughs> yeah. There,
1: there's just, it's so there's, it's, there's so much more richness. it, it you see God's character. You see His personality. You get to see, yeah, the kinds of stories that He finds amusing. Mm-hmm. Um, it it, it it's makes very interesting.
2: Well, and I think it helps it make more sense. The things that we just look at and go, "Oh, well, that's strange," and then all of a sudden they they make sense if you know the context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know why? Why did the Philistines put the Ark on a cart? Because that's how. They would have transported their God, and that's what they need to do as an act of honor. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm not saying honor because they wanted to worship God. I'm saying honor because they were scared to death of what God would do if they didn't honor him. Right. But at the same time, she goes on, she takes it further. And this was, she says, Well, if all we needed was ancient Near Eastern context and tradition, then we wouldn't have to read the Bible. We could just read ancient Near Eastern context and tradition. Nobody who promotes, yeah, nobody who promotes studying these things. Would say you need to put your Bible aside. That is the exact opposite of what we're trying to accomplish. And so uh, I'm just, you know, when we don't understand context, we miss out on some of the significance. And I'm getting ready to prove right here. Okay. Well, and I'm just going.
1: <laughs> well, that's that. It's just that's just an example of the, of the false dilemma, the false dichotomy. Yeah, it's not an either or. It, it, it's yeah. It, you're, there's room in your head for all of it. I hope. <laughs> Most, the average person, <laughs> th- there's, there's room in your head for it if you just yeah. are willing to learn. Precisely. And that's the thing that drives me nuts with, with mm-hmm. a lot of stuff.
2: And by the way, if you haven't listened to The Bible Project, check it out. It is some really good stuff. Yeah, check
1: out their YouTube channel. It's great. I've been going through it with my girls. Um, so and- if you're looking for something with your kids... There you go, yeah, it's it's great because it it breaks things down very simply. And I know they're not getting everything, but they it's enough where they're starting to ask questions
2: well, last night, while I was reading that uh, on my phone, uh, the the thumbnail was included from the Bible project. Mm-hmm. And your youngest looks over my shoulder, she says, "I watched that. And yeah. so you know, she's she's getting it. Mm-hmm. and um uh, so no they're they're hanging on to it. And I think you know. It, Everything I've heard, I haven't listened to everything, but everything that I've heard has been good. It's been solid and it's been thought-provoking. And mm-hmm. I think if you're listening to us, you want to think about the scripture. And they and,
1: and they do they do a really great job of taking the stuff we're doing like very slowly and giving you the the bird's eye view of mm-hmm. a book in like 5 minutes. Yeah. And and it's It's well done.
2: Well, and don't, and that's, I'll mention this right quick and then we'll get back to Samuel. Just because another podcast may be covering the same things we're covering or, you know, we've got overlapping topics. Don't think, oh, I don't need to listen to that. Repetition and hearing it taught from different angles is Mm -hmm. a good way to help you remember and and to really lock it into place Mm -hmm. in your brain. So don't ever think that, oh, I don't want to hear a repeat.
1: Well, and and well, and the other thing that I like about it is you do have that visual representation mm-hmm. that kind of, it, it helps you remember as yeah. well. We're, you know, we're just chatting and it just kind of goes off into the, the <laughs> right. wherever.
2: So yeah, we we haven't uh, decided to commit to a dry erase board yet. So, uh, which is <laughs> would be difficult for our podcast listeners. Uh, but anyway, so we're back to, to Samuel. We're going to talk about, this is a cultural context. We, we think of kings being anointed as being normal because we have heard the story of Samuel anointing David, and we know that that's something that happened. But in their context, th- there's something else going on. And, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the cultural context that Samuel, the book, has been telling us all along. This is a major influence on how Israel thinks and perceives things. Okay. That's Egypt. Egypt has been one of the major cultural influences on Israel. Since they've left, you know, since the time mm-hmm. they were there. And Samuel has pointed us back to Egypt time and time again with what's wrong with the people. Mm-hmm. But one of the things you do whenever you're trying to present something new to a culture is you take an old symbol that people are familiar with and then you make it into something
0: new. Mm-hmm.
2: So D.F. Payne, who, who's a theologist, he, uh, an archaeologist and uh, I'm sorry, not archaeologist. A theologist? A theologist theologian? You like, theologian. Yeah, that's the word. Um, I tried to put like five
1: words together. An Archaeologian and a theologist. Oh, yes, yeah.
2: Um. <laughs> it's, it's theologian light for anyone here.
1: <laughs> theologian and archaeologist? I
2: don't know if he's an archaeologist, but he, he is, I don't know why that word popped up. Okay, he, has, he was
1: a theologian.
2: He's a theologian and he studied Egyptian history. He spent a lot of time with that.
1: Go with that so, last one.
2: There we go. So, in Egyptian culture, it was the custom to anoint vassal kings, i.e., minor kings who owed allegiance to the great king of Egypt. In this light, we may see the king of Israel not as a king on his own right, but as a vassal to Yahweh, who is envisaged as the true king of Israel. So, basically, by anointing him, he's not saying you're king, he's saying you're. A kinglet, you're okay. You know, you are not as great as the true king of Israel, but you get to serve him. Okay. And now this makes more sense in the context of Israelite religion and their view of God and who, who is going to, to rule over them. And you know, notice God does not release his his, his heritage. You get to be king over my heritage. It, it's not something that mm-hmm. that he's saying. You know, you just go and do. I'm still going to be very much here. Now, there is a discrepancy here in in the text, and I wanted to look at that for just a moment. Okay. Uh, and by the way, the, the I should point out the term "king" is not used in this passage. It, we're still using that um, word for prince or yeah. leader. So the discrepancies are between, of course, the Masoretic and the Septuagint.
1: You don't say. Yeah,
2: I know. So the the Masoretic, all they have is has not got the lord anointed you to be the prince over his heritage that's it two lines uh the septuagint has the lord has anointed you to ruler over his people of israel you shall reign over the people of the lord you will save them from the hand of the enemies all around now this shall be a sign to you that the lord has anointed you ruler over his heritage his heritage so that's a pretty big discrepancy you know this is more than just a couple of words off um there's no consensus on which one is right. It doesn't, you know, even most commentators will say we, we don't know which one's, which one is correct. It doesn't really matter because the information that the Septuagint provides is found in other places. So we, we have all that information and the story and the theological messaging isn't, um, it's not impacted by, by the omission or the inclusion. Now, um, one idea is that the, the Septuagint is correcting a mistake within the Masoretic. Uh, and if there is a mistake in Masoretic, I, I'm going to teach you a, a, a term that translators use. It's called haplography. Isn't that a great word? Sure. So, okay. What does that mean? Yeah. So, haplography means where it's, uh, you have a phrase that's repeated that the scribe misses the second time it's used or the first time it's used they They see that it's used. they only see that it's used once. They don't realize it's been repeated twice. And so they'll skip over that section. So where it says, um, O Lord of Israel," or um, I forget what the words were there. oh uh, God of israel, the 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 scribe probably saw it one time and didn't realize that there were more words and was repeated again and then more words. He only thought it was said once. So instead of writing down everything between the two phrases, he just writes down the end phrase.
0: Gotcha. Okay.
1: okay. Does that
2: make sense? Yeah. Okay. So,
1: um, like he lost his place. Yeah. And then when he saw the phrase again, it further, farther down on the page.
2: Precisely. And so, you know, it, that, that happens and we're going to have another place or two in, um, in Samuel where that's going to, uh, show up again, that that's probably what happened. We don't know. Um, but again, even though there is this discrepancy, it is one of those things, it does not impact the theology or the narrative. So we don't really have to worry about it. It's not a huge problem. It's just one of those, hmm. So when people say, oh, there's mistakes in the Bible, these are the kinds of things they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I, I just want to reassure people that when you see those things on Facebook, the memes and, you know, all these things attacking the credibility of the Bible, It's not some kind of major conspiracy that the translators have covered up, and it's not, you know, it's, it's if you blow it out of proportion, then you've got a problem with the Bible. But if you look at what's actually Mm -hmm. the problem is, yeah.
1: It's almost like if you don't want someone to know about it, write a book. Yeah. Um.
2: (laughs) So, well, and the (laughs) the thing is, whenever you, you realize that the people who are making these accusations, most of them can't read Hebrew or Greek, let alone both. So, you know. They, Fair enough. So yeah, and if you find something like that that bothers you, contact me. I'll talk to you about it. Send us a message on the Raven Creek page, Yeah. and so I'll, I'll even do research if I don't know about it, uh, you know, just right off the top of my head. So the important thing is the line, his heritage, God's heritage, mm-hmm. it, it's that line has been preserved, and it's to remind us Saul does not get Israel. Right. It, he's going to be responsible. So verse two, I know one verse in, it took us that long. Uh, when you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you want, that you want to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? So um, you were pointing out that Samuel had said basically the same thing to Saul that Saul had said before. Mm-hmm. So here it is the third time that he's going to be hearing, well, actually four times, because he's going to hear it twice from Samuel, before and after the dinner. Mm -hmm. And then he's going to hear it again from these prophets. And he'd said it himself. So four times these words are used. And as confirmation, Samuel knows what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. So Rachel's tomb, this is fun. This is uh, one of those little rabbit trails I decided to uh, chase. It's located on the border of Ephraim and Benjamin. And so we, we first hear about it in Genesis thirty five nineteen and then 48, 7. And Rachel's tomb is located a couple of different places because of problems, again, with the text. So the, um, the tomb is located near Ephrath. Now, okay. Ephrath is typically known as Bethlehem, and Bethlehem is located in the territory of Judah, not Benjamin. But Jeremiah thirty one fifteen has Rachel crying in Ramah, which is Samuel's hometown, mm-hmm. and so the possible solution for this is that there, Ephrath. We do know this was associated with two cities. There's a Bethlehem in um, the territory of Judah, but then there's also Kirith Jerim, which that's going to be uh, a Kirath Jerim, and each city was founded by Har. Now, Har is the father of Bethlehem and the father of Kiriath-Jerim, and we find that in 1 Chronicles 2, 50 and 51. Okay. Okay. So what happened was a scribe saw Ephrath, and he just put the wrong city in. He, he didn't, it, he, he was used to Ephrath-Bethlehem uh, and not Kiriath-Jerim, which okay. would have been by Ramah. So, um, and it, it makes sense for it to be Kiriath-Jerim because that's part of Jacob's journey. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you typically don't carry a body of someone who's died, you know, a few hundred miles away. You tend to bury pretty close to where they died in this culture. Sure. Um, Saul is in the territory of Benjamin. That's where he's he's operating from at this point. Uh, It's also in keeping with Jeremiah's prophecy. And so, despite all this, there's still a, a big group of people who who insist that it has to be Bethlehem, that it has to be Bethlehem of Judah, of David. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I debate that, um, but that is the location, the one in Bethlehem. If you decide that you want to visit Rachel's tomb today, mm-hmm. that's where you would be going, and you can still go there, and it is still a major location for pilgrimages. Right. Um, now, you have to be okay with armed guards, armored buses, and the possibility of pipe bombs. Just be aware. Um, probably not her real tomb, and you still got to deal with that. Now, the, the reason for the, these pilgrimages there, and I, this is our pop culture tie-in, uh, <laughs> Jeremiah 31, 15 through 17, um, he presents Rachel as, as interceding before God for the return of her children, you know, for Israel. To come back from from exile, to come back home, okay, and God responds to the tears of Rachel, which is an interesting idea to think that Rachel is wanting her children to return from exile, and God is responding to her because she's dead sure, and so now we've got some some questions about you know what are the dead doing? Are they interceding for us? and I didn't go into that, but this is something to think about. And to, um, you know, play with your brain. We may come back to that in a wrap-up episode. Okay. So now that's kind of why there's uh, pilgrimages. But the real reason is because the Kabbalah picks up on this and man, they just elevate Rachel to a whole new level. Mm -hmm. She is this spiritual powerhouse that is supposed to be uh, able to, to accomplish some really great things. And she's able to do this because... The story is that Rachel, of course, she marries Jacob or is engaged to Jacob. Mm-hmm. And Leah was supposed to be engaged to Esau. And supposedly, Leah was just terrified of the idea of marrying Esau. And she was just in tears and couldn't handle the thought. And Rachel's like, Well, I know what dad's going to do. Dad's going to listen to Leah and he's going to marry her off to Jacob in my place. And that can't happen. So, She goes to Jacob and she gives him a secret sign that she's going to give him so that he can identify her when they get to the tent. Well, at the last minute, Rachel's like, this is selfish of me and I can't leave my sister in this kind of peril. So I'm going to give her the sign that she can give Jacob. And so we're going to let dad do his thing and then I'll marry Jacob later. But this is going to save my sister. So yeah. Yeah she now becomes this very selfless giving woman who, who has protected her sister by sacrificing the man she loves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some, some may even go so far to say that she hid under the bed. So when Jacob spoke to her, she could answer and the voice would be right. Mm -hmm. Now I kind of think that you would notice if, um, you know, the, the, it was a disembodied voice and not one in your ear, but you know, that's just like, all right, this is how far they're willing to take it. And, Beds probably weren't elevated. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but you know, you do have to give her credit. She did navigate through this very complex marriage with her sister and the concubines. And I mean, we're I'm living over with my sister in a camper on her place where the kids and the dogs and all the family dynamics makes for some interesting uh Interchanges and you know, we're getting along fine, yeah, but yeah. It, it's just complicated when you're that close together. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine how much more so when you're picking up a moving camp every day and you're having mm-hmm. together the sheep. And I mean, it, it and Rachel managed to not only survive this, but she managed to, to actually produce you know, two children who, who become the father of the fathers of the tribes of Israel. And she was Jacob's favorite and she was the one he loved the most. And that's saying something for her that she would still be lovable and that he would grieve for her when she died in the midst of all of this. So uh, she's seen as the perfect person to, to intercede for the unity of Israel. Right. And so her influence is believed to be so great. And again, this is not scriptural. This is tradition. Her influence is believed to be so great that if you visit her tomb, it's going to guard you against the evil eye so nobody can put a curse on you. Okay, it's going to give you fertility. You can get grace, favor, and beauty—everything a, a young bride would want. It's also going to guard against war. Okay, and if you can't make the trip yourself, there are solutions. Basically, you get on Amazon hmm. and you can buy a bracelet—a red, red bracelet that's been wrapped around the tomb of Rachel's uh, Rachel's tomb seven times. Okay, and so for seven ninety nine. You can get the simple red string bracelet that has been guaranteed to have been wrapped around this tomb, and then made. You know, there's a thread and it's been cut into pieces. Or if you want the more elaborate version, that comes with a certificate of authenticity and the gold charms and all of that, you can get, pay upwards of two hundred and thirty dollars for them. So, so.
1: We're not, they're not a sponsor, and, and and she's saying this ironically,
2: being very facetious with this. Please In recognize. In case you didn't catch
1: it. These... We're, we're not we're not hawking <laughs> relics here.
2: A relics, um, good luck charms, superstition. I, none of that. Um, these were these are the same bracelets. If you remember back a few decades ago, at this point, I didn't realize how long it had been. But Madonna had was very famous for wearing her red bracelet. There were a couple other stars who got in on it too. And I think they, you know, like everything that people get involved with, and it becomes a sensation. They lost interest in Sure. sure. So. But, you know, the, the the idea, the tradition is that you would wear the string. Uh, if you're a single woman, you wear it until it falls off and then you meet the love of your life. Uh, how did that work out for Rachel? Let's just think about this. Sure. You know, <laughs> and so um, but what this tells us and the reason why I even brought that up is the idea of Rachel's tomb being a place of spiritual empowerment and, and spiritual significance was evidently alive and well. At the time of saul's uh, when Saul was being appointed king mm-hmm. and during during Samuel's day, and this is a tradition that has continued until today. It's still going on. And there was a major dispute with um in Israel over who actually had the rights to have Rachel's tomb. You mm-hmm. know was it Muslims? was it christians? and and I'm not Christians. sorry Jews. Christians typically don't care. it It's the, the Jews and the Muslims. And it becomes very it's a very explosive situation, literally. and but I, I bring it up because when we see these traditions talked about in the Bible, we need to realize that they they were there, and that this is they they do carry on forward. and and there's these roots that go really deep and these manifestations that continue even into our day. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, we don't understand why a tradition is the way it is, but it's because even though it might have been changed, it may have been tweaked according to what people are wanting or people are thinking in that moment, mm-hmm. traditions are there for a reason. And we've got to acknowledge there is a reason. So what's, what's going on here? And I don't really know what's happening that Rachel would be the one who, who her death, her tomb would become a place. Where you could find the spiritual enlightenment or awakening, and evidently that seems that Jeremiah is actually kind of endorsing, and he he's saying that Rachel still has power in her death to to pray for the people. Um, again, I don't have all that put together yet. That's going to be a level of research I'm going to have to go into. But I, I just think it's interesting because
1: yeah, we're Rachel, not saying go build a theology on it. No, just no, just something to to ponder.
2: Well, and that, and that's the thing. It, it is about it is about thinking about this stuff. And I think Jeremiah is actually the only reason why I would give it any kind of second thought. If, you know, other than, you know, Madonna, I don't care if she's visited. I don't care that I can buy bracelets off of Amazon. I, I want to see what Jeremiah has to say. And by the way, Jeremiah is not saying go pray at her tomb. Right. He's just saying that she is praying for her children. There's a difference. So... You know how, where are the dead? Of what's going on? I think this is probably a major topic among uh, certain parts of Christianity, and we talk about the veneration of saints. I see that continuing into certain denominations within the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know how how Mm -hmm. right or wrong is that? And I think that's that's an interesting question that I have just begun to ask because we were raised Southern Baptist, and you know we never (laughs) you don't consider things like that, and you know so I'm still learning things, but. Part of the significance here for uh, for Saul is Rachel is his maternal grandmother. Right. And so she is part of his family. And so he's going to basically his grandmother or great-great-great-great-grandmother's grave. Yeah. And this is where he will receive news of his family. And so he's going to hear about his father and know that his father is worried about him. Mm-hmm. And it's going to happen, you know, in family ground. And so there is this this idea here in Samuel that we are really, really embedding Saul in the tribe of Benjamin. Mm-hmm. And you are not supposed to forget that because Benjamin is not, you know, they just don't have a great reputation right now. Right. They're, yeah. they're still recovering. So anyhow, that's, that's kind of, um, we can kind of leave it there for now because we've got some more signs coming up. Right. And I, I've got some more, um, weird stuff going on. So, I just feel like I need to say again, I'm not saying go pray at Rachel's tomb.
1: We are not endorsing go pray to, we're not endorsing prayer to anyone except God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know,
2: Jesus, you know, Holy Spirit, you know. but I, I just want to bring out that there is this tradition and I think sometimes we still hear about it um, because the Kabbalah has been, been a um, major source of fascination. Sure. particularly after Madonna picked it up. And I know there's a lot of friends that I've had who've done Bible study and they've, they've gotten a hold of the Kabbalah. I'm not even recommending reading the Kabbalah unless you're really founded in Scripture and you have really spent a lot of time and can sort through the distortions, because mm-hmm. there are some distortions and there's some additions to the Scripture. And you, you don't, don't confuse yourself until you're ready. You know, <laughs> don't confuse yourself until you're ready, yeah that, that that's, that's <laughs> I mean, <laughs> until you are grounded, man, just just don't go there
1: and and if you want like a really quick abbreviated version um uh, and you're into comics, uh Alan Moores Promethea is a really good um, like basic walkthrough of kind of Kabbalism. yeah, you kind of tie some other stuff in there. Um, be but, careful
2: with that one <laughs> in in case-
1: yeah, don't I mean.
2: Don't confuse yourself Don't until conf- you're ready.
1: <laughs> but I'll say it's just an interesting story. Um, that
2: well, and that's the thing. I think that's where a lot of Christians kind of get sucked into it because it seems like there is this this you know kind of mystical background and the, these additions to the story that help you know make it a little juicier. Kind of like you know Rachel there. You know, did she actually have a sign that she gave Jacob to keep Leah from taking her place or? you know, what we don't know. And these, these are the, it's speculative. Right. And in some ways it, it's almost like historical fiction, but then there's this other aspect that comes in that pretty much says, Hey, when, and this is the problem. Now I'm just going to go ahead. I know we're going to run over, but I want to throw this out there. When um, one of the main things in Kabbalah is that when God created the universe, mm-hmm. that he, he took a breath. And in the middle of that creation, he he didn't fully exhale as he was doing it, and when he took that breath, a little bit of uh, of flaw crept in to creation, and even into God himself. And that we're so supposed to help fix creation, and we're supposed to help fix God through fixing creation. That's one of the things that's presented. And anything that suggests that God is flawed, I, we should have a problem with. Oh yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. You know the, this is the reason why I'm not suggesting it, but I do know it it's very prevalent in our society, and it's getting uh, I think kind of the the big flash is over with it for right now, mm-hmm. but it's still there's undercurrents of it. And like I said, if I can buy bracelets off of Amazon, there's a market for it, so that tells me people are still out there uh, appealing to this, and I don't think it's just uh, our Jewish friends. I think that there's a lot of Christian friends who are also. Saying, oh well, you know, I found this great addition to the word. Well, no, that's no. Right. We don't add to the Bible, so uh, we we study background and context, but we don't add anything,
1: and, uh, and we don't substitute anything for the precisely, Bible.
2: Precisely, precisely. So I know that's a lot of caveats, but I, I I feel like we need to drive that home. Just because we mentioned it, it's not an endorsement. Right. So yeah. it's more of a warning. <laughs> so, so.
1: All right. Well, with that. Uh, everyone, <laughs> thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed it, please, uh, follow us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, uh, or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. radio. We're in a, we're in a few different places. Yeah. Um, be sure to follow us on, on your favorite podcatcher. If we're not on it, let us know and we'll see what we can do about fixing that. Absolutely. And, um, what else, uh, be part of the conversation on social media, Raven Creek SC. Mm-hmm. So our handle for Twitter, Instagram and Facebook mm-hmm. um, and what else? Patreon, if you really liked it, uh, <laughs> yeah. buy us some coffee, upgrade the mics. We'll figure out what we're going to do. We actually haven't done anything with any of that support yet, but we're waiting until we we feel like we've got the right, yeah. the right thing. What's the next we're, thing to we're, invest we're trying in? <laughs> to be, trying to be wise with those funds and we do appreciate it. And um, until next time, uh, we'll see everybody on Monday. Have a great week. Thanks.
0: Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes, or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash SC. As always, thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us next week.